Well, last week, we started a brand new message series called My True Selfie, and uh, as we got into the message last week, I mentioned a few selfie stats that are pretty amazing, like the fact that we upload 24 billion selfies every year, uh, like the fact that many of us, according to the averages, are going to take 25,000 selfies and post them in a lifetime, uh, which works out to basically one every day. All those things tell us that selfies really are a, a huge part of our lives. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this phenomenon or not, but the question is, what's really up with selfies? Why are they such a big thing? And many scholars have begun to study this and interpret the selfie phenomenon uh, as, in large measure, our insecure attempts to make ourselves appear more happy and more successful, more admired, and, and more connected than we really are. In other words, our selfies are really all about our self-esteem, our self-image, our self-worth. It's it's sort of like all of our artfully curated and filtered Instagram and Facebook posts are trying to hide something, which is a bad selfie, a poor self-image, what we really think about ourselves. It's sort of like we don't really think our true identity is all that good. So the question raised by selfies really in one sense is, who are you? Are you your insecure, disappointing self that you are trying to mask? Or are you your vain, artificial, selfie self that you are showing to the world on social media? Well, what if the answer is neither, but it's actually better than both? What if you could truly come to understand what God says about you, who God actually created you and designed you and calls you to be? And what if that self your true self, is actually more amazing than anything you could ever post on social media. That's really what's behind this series. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we introduced this topic of identity, and we saw that the truest thing about me is my identity in Christ. Now, there may be many, many things about you that are are true about you, but, but who you are in Christ, that is the truest thing of all. And what we're doing each week in this series is we're going to unpack various identity markers. We're going to see certain things that the Bible tells us are true about us in Christ. And we're going to see how everything flows from that reality. That in Christ, God has entered our lives and he has made us new people, new creations. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter who you may have been in the past. In Christ, you are something new. I introduced you last week to what's kind of becoming our series theme verses, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. I encourage you to uh, memorize them, and I have had some of you tell me that you've been working on them. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. I want us together right now to read uh, these verses out loud. So would you follow along? Everybody join in. Uh, Peter says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, 
to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, these words are so amazing, aren't they? They're just so incredible. I mean, who are we in Christ? What has God made us to be? Uh, We're going to look today at the first of several identity markers, several ways that uh, the, the Word of God tells us that we are new in Christ. And this This way is actually the most significant, the most foundational aspect of our identity in Christ, and it is this. We are sons and daughters of God through Christ. Here's the bottom line. The Bible says that when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, God adopts us into his family. He becomes our father. We become his son or his daughter I mean, just think about this and think about the incredible privilege that that is to be the son or the daughter of God. I mean, think of, of how this really addresses and meets the need that is the deepest longing of all of our hearts, which is to be part of a family. I think we all long for people who will love us and accept us and care for us and protect us whenever we need it. We all long to be fathered and mothered. Psalm 68.6 says, God sets the lonely in families. Why does God do that? Because at the heart of our identity, it's the way that God created us. We have this deep need for relationship, for community, for family. I know that some of us who haven't had a family or maybe we didn't have a healthy family, when we're honest, we would admit that this is the biggest hole in our lives. I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but, but this is also at the very heart of our spiritual longings. We would love to think of God as our Father, ourselves as His children. The good news today, wonderful news today, is that this is exactly what the Bible says is true for those who are in Christ. Our key verse today is 1 John 3, 1, and the Apostle John says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, this verse is so important uh, that I would actually like to suggest we all work on memorizing this one as well. It is such a beautiful statement. I want you to get it into your hearts that you are a child of God that we are all the children of God, God's sons and daughters in Christ. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to do it uh, today in the following way. We're actually going to follow this pattern in each of our messages this series. We're going to look at our true selves, our our true identity under three headings. You, You can maybe think of these headings as three ways that we can live in God's wonderful light. Each week I'm going to show you, first of all, an identity truth. Uh, What does the Bible say about our identity in Christ. Secondly, we're going to look at identity theft because oftentimes our identity gets stolen from us in various ways. We're going to look at the ways that we can lose our identity. Uh, We're going to look at the false ideas that we can sometimes have about our identity. And then finally, we're going to do some identity training. Uh, How can we grow practically in applying this identity and living this identity out in Christ? That's the pattern we're going to follow follow today and then uh, the weeks that are ahead. So let's jump in. Uh, Here's the first way that we can live uh, in God's wonderful light as his sons and daughters. The identity truth is very simply this. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. 
Now, this is everywhere in the Bible. Over 200 times in the New Testament, God is referred to as Father. And the Bible shows us that at the heart of what it means to follow Christ is knowing that we are his sons and his daughters. To be a Christian means that you are a child of God. Amen? Now, this isn't the only way to describe our identity, but it is the first, it is the most fundamental. We are his children. And that is why 1 John 3, 1 is so crucial. That's why you need to learn these words, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. See, a lot of people have heard that before, but you think of it maybe as a title. Uh, But it's more than that. It's actually a status. It is our identity. It is who we are. It is what we are. Now, I need to be clear. I am not saying that everyone in the world is God's child. In fact, the Bible doesn't teach that. There is a sense in which we can say that all people are God's children because all people are created in the image of God. God made us. God loves all people. But what we're talking about is this. When we choose to live apart from God, we break off that relationship. We separate ourselves from him. It's almost like we abandon the family and we change our name. See, it is through Christ that we can come back to him and receive forgiveness for any sin we've ever committed, anything we've ever done that is wrong in God's eyes. And in doing that, we can come home. We can find the Father that we've always longed for in God himself. We can live in that father-child relationship of forgiveness and acceptance. God can adopt us and welcome us back into his family. And we can become who he's created us to be, his precious sons and daughters. See, this only happens through Christ. We're, We're talking about life here, eternal life. John 1, 12 and 13 says, Yet to all who received him... To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We enter into a father-child relationship with God when we trust in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians 3.26 when he says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it is so incredibly important that we see this reality. See, there's a a lot of people who who think of coming into a relationship with God as being about escaping from hell. And that is true. That happens. But that is not everything. A relationship with God is not about just believing some doctrines. It's not about just keeping some rules. Fundamentally, at the core, it is about this reality. We are now God's kids. We are his children. Now, I'm emphasizing this especially for this reason. I know that there are a lot of people who have a hard time receiving this, accepting this. There are a lot of people who are skeptical that God could really love them that much. I read a survey recently where people were asked to describe how they thought God viewed them. Do you know what? the most common response was more people than anything else said they thought that God was disappointed in them. That's how they thought God looked at them. See, we look at the sin in our lives. We look at our junk, and we have junk, don't we? 
how many of you are willing to admit, I have some junk? Would you please raise your hand right now? You know, all God's children, children got junk. Um, that's just the way it is. We look at all that stuff. We look at all the times we blow it, and we think, how could God love me and see me as his son or his daughter. A lot of us live with shame and we feel in our lives all the time like we should go crawl in some hole and we think because we think that, that that's what God thinks. That's what God wants us to do. I want to tell you today, you couldn't be more wrong if that's what you think. God is not mad at you. God is not disappointed in you. God is not ashamed of you. See, the very fact that God created you tells you how much he loves you. Think about it. He's the one who designed you. He's the one who determined your DNA, made you just like you are. Your very existence is God saying, I want you in my family. I want a relationship with you. That's reality. And I want to tell you something. That is true even if you don't believe it. That is true even if you have a hard time accepting it. And some of you really need to hear this today. For some of you, this may be the most important thing that you have ever heard. God is your father. You are his son. You are his daughter. A long time ago, I first read a story that I've shared several times over the years. I've probably shared it here some time ago. I can't remember. It's the story of a woman named Marianne Bird. And she was born years ago with a cleft palate. Growing up, She knew that she was different. Uh, She hated the way she looked. When she started school, it all got worse. Her classmates made it really clear how she appeared to them, this little girl with a misshapen lip, a crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. And when they would ask her what happened to her lip, she would tell them, uh, would lie, and would just say that she had fallen and had cut it on a piece of glass because somehow it seemed better to have suffered an accident than to have been born that way. She grew up convinced that no one really loved her except her family, maybe. And then she entered the second grade. She had a teacher named Mrs. Leonard, and everybody loved Mrs. Leonard. Mrs. Leonard was short and round and always happy. She was just one of those people that sparkled, you know. Every year, uh, the school gave all of the students a hearing test. And one day, Mrs. Leonard said it was time for that year's test, and she began to administer it uh, to every student in the class. Finally, it was Marianne's turn. And she knew from past years that as she stood against the door and she covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and then she would have to whisper it back. Sentences like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? But when it came her turn, Mrs. Leonard said seven words that she never expected to hear. Seven words that forever changed her life. Mrs. Leonard whispered, I wish you were my little girl. See, when God looks at you, he doesn't look with disappointment. He doesn't look with embarrassment. He doesn't look with anger. He looks at you with love. And that love which he gave freely, that love which you have never earned, that love which you can never earn, that love which is given to you and there's nothing that you can do to make him love you more or make him love you less, that love is what God wants you to know. 
And he wants you to know that love he has for you as your father at the very core of your being. He wants you to feel it and experience it. He wants you to know it, not just with your mind, but also with your heart. That's part of what's behind this prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19. He prayed for them, may you be able to feel and understand as all God's children should how long, how wide, how deep, and how high his love really is. And to experience this love for yourselves, though it is so great that you will never see the end of it or fully know it or understand it. Friends, hear me today. This is who you are in Christ. This is your identity truth. If you are in Jesus, you are a son, you are a daughter of God. And it is not just a title. It is a new status. It is the way you can relate to God now. Do you see? Do you, you practice this? See, God doesn't just want you to know about this new identity. God wants you to live out of this new identity. A change in identity doesn't mean anything if it doesn't change the way that we actually live. And so God wants you to live as a son or a daughter of his He wants you to let that identity that you have in Christ shape the way you look at yourself at the very deepest level to transform the way you relate to other people, the way you relate to him. How's that going to happen? Well, there's actually uh, both a positive and a negative way that we can approach this, and that's what we're going to look at next. We're going to start with the negative first. Uh, Living in light of our identity means, secondly, that we have to deal with what we might call identity theft. Uh, This means that I fight against enemies who try to steal my identity in Christ. See, here's the reality. This is why we're talking about this today. Many of us aren't living in light of our true identity, our true selves. Why? Well, one of the reasons is that we've had our identity stolen by enemies. And out of that, we now have this unhealthy, dysfunctional, even kind of toxic relationship with God. It's based in fear The honest truth for some of you here, and you know this, is you don't approach God as a child who's loved by his father. That is not how your relationship is with him. So why has that happened? Well, we we have three enemies, and we talked about this some last week. And I want to read the verses again, Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3. And and as I read these verses, I want you to remember that our, our enemies work against us by lying. And we are told different lies by these enemies. Here's what Paul says. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. See, we are told lies to steal our identity. And we are told these lies by our enemies. And those enemies that Paul identifies are the world and the flesh and the devil. Are you aware of lies that you hear. Every one of us hears them. Some of us believe them. Some of us fight against them, and we don't live according to them. I want to kind of work through what this means in terms of our our, our being children of God, and I'm going to give you three questions that you can write down, and I would hope that you would take these home and you would think about them for your own life. You would try to answer these questions for yourself. Here's the first question. What lies does the world tell me? See, are are you aware of the lies that are told to you about who you are in Christ as a son or a daughter of God? 
The reality is our world has given up on fatherhood in many ways. We demean, we denigrate fatherhood. Our culture has looked at all of the toxic fathers, all of the failed fathers, all of the dangerous fathers, all of the evil fathers. And our culture has decided that there really isn't a good thing anymore, if there ever was, that we could call a good father. That we don't think in many parts of our culture that there is any such thing as a pure and abundant and steadfast love of a father for his child. Far too many of our dads, and you know this, some of you very painfully, far too many of our dads were absent or abusive or maybe just plain apathetic. Far too few children feel safe in their father's love. And it's not hard to look around and see the fallout of poor fatherhood all around us, in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, some of us even in our own hearts. And some of you are here today with very deep wounds, very real pain. See, the fallout of failed fatherhood often produces hearts that find it hard to trust in the love of a truly faithful, truly loving father. Part of understanding this reality of our identity is that we recognize the brokenness of our world, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and we fight against that. And so if you had a father who was absent much of the time, too busy working, too preoccupied with their own issues, you know, kind of dad that even when he was there, he wasn't there. Or if you had a dad who was abusive, Maybe you were wounded in unspeakable ways by the very person who should have loved you and cared for you and protected you. You may find that this issue of identity is very hard for you, but you have to fight against that. You cannot let the lie of someone who failed in the responsibility God gave them determine who you are today and supersede what God has said about you. When you struggle with this, you need to, to know this, that when God refers to himself as father, he is referring to the kind of father that we were created to have. See, I think all of us, deep in our hearts, we know that a father's love is meant to be life-giving. Well, God's is. We know that a father's love is meant to be safe and pure. God's is. We know that a father's love should cause him to protect and to provide and to be present. Well, God does that. See, I'm just encouraging you, don't let the brokenness of the world eclipse your view of the love of a perfect heavenly father. Maybe I could put it this way. Don't let the lies of the world speak louder than God's truth. The world's brokenness, though, is not the only thing that fights against us. It's not our only enemy. Actually, our own flesh can be an enemy. Our own flesh can work against us. So my second question is, what lies does my flesh tell me? Are you aware of the things that you tell yourself? Many of us are prone to question, why would God love me? I mean, how could God love me? Some of us even ask, ultimately, does God really love me at all? We don't really know that we believe that. We're sort of like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son who, who found himself at the bottom. And he said, remember this? He said, I am no longer worthy to be called your child. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And some of us, we look at ourselves, we look at our sins, and we think, after all I've done, there is no way that God could really love me. I want you to remember that that is actually the very point of the parable of the prodigal son. 
Don't look at yourself. Look at the Father. His love is always based on his character, not yours. And his love is ultimately greater than all of our sins. So if you find yourself here today and you're struggling with this, maybe you're doubting that such a love can exist. Maybe your circumstances make you wonder if the Father really cares. Maybe your past makes you think that you're unlovable or unworthy. Hear the truth of the word of God, that you are his child and he deeply loves you. Let me share the truth of, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Think about this. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you hear this? He chose you, and he chose you out of his abundant love, not not out of your worthiness. He has adopted you. He has made you his own. Notice what Paul says. He did all of those things before the foundation of the world. And that means many things, but one of the things it means is this. It had nothing to do with any merit on your behalf. Nothing to do with anything good or bad that you had done. It was simply about his choice to love you. I want you to also notice, if you look at it again, that choosing you, And adopting you as his child brings him glory and praise and joy. You see, you need to let the word, uh, the truth of God's word heal the wounds and replace the doubts and, and, and supplant the fears that you have with the deep joy of God's unfathomable, unfailing, never ending love. Don't let the lies of your flesh speak louder than God's truth. Our third enemy is the devil. The Bible says he is the enemy of our souls. The Bible says he delights in accusing us and tempting us to doubt our true identity. So third question is, what lies does Satan tell me? And you need to be aware of his schemes. You need to be aware of his strategies. His goal is to make you believe that you are not God's child, that you are still a slave, still an orphan, or maybe an illegitimate child, anything other than a beloved child of the heavenly father. You know, the lie of the slave says that you have to work and work hard. You have to earn and you have to keep God's love through your performance. Mess up and you're out. Your worth is tied to your ability to produce and to behave. The slave is always working, always working, never resting. The lie of the orphan says that you've already been abandoned. You're alone. No one cares for you. No one's going to provide for you. No one's going to protect you. No one's going to love you. And the lie of the illegitimate child says you don't really belong. In fact, you never did. That the warmth and the joy of family life, well, that's for somebody else. Somebody who's more deserving, more talented, more favored, more blessed, more anything. What I'd like you to do is think about which of these lies in particular plagues you the most. Has the world beaten you down in such a way that it hurts to even consider the love of a good father? 
Does your flesh regularly rise up and point out to you all of the reasons that you could never be loved in that way? Does Satan, the enemy of your soul, tempt you to think of yourself as a slave who can never do enough or an orphan who will never be wanted enough or an illegitimate child who will simply never be enough? See, don't let the lies speak louder than the truth. We have enemies who are trying to steal our identity. We must fight against those enemies and we must bring to to bear the word of God. And that leads me actually to the third uh, thing that we need to see. And this is the positive side. We can be proactive in this. We can enter into what we're calling identity training where we live out the reality of who God has made me in Christ. Again, 1 John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. In other words, that is reality. We are God's children. So how do I live it out? Let me give you two things. And uh, I just want to let you know ahead of time, you've heard this before. But you need to hear it again because many of us still aren't practicing these things. This is fundamental. This is basic. Uh, First of all, I reshape my mind and heart with God's word. See, if you want to live out of your identity, you need to know God's word. You need to learn who you are in Christ from God's word, not from the world. I need to train my mind and my heart to see reality as God sees it, not the way that my flesh sees it. See, some of you, you think you know better than God who you are. Can I lovingly suggest that you are wrong? See, don't listen to your flesh. You need to train your mind and heart to see reality as God sees it. You need to stand against Satan's lies. See, what I'm telling you here is that the only antidote to the poison of these lies is the antitoxin of the truth of God's word. See, are you training your mind and your heart to believe and to live according to truth? I want to pause here a moment and be really clear here because I think some of you might misunderstand me. I am not talking here just about learning some verses, okay, some verses that we have been talking about. Uh, These verses that we have been reading and that we will read in future weeks in this series are important, And you need to learn them. And some of you especially need to memorize them and get them in your heart. But I am talking here about something beyond that even, something far deeper. True training of our minds and our hearts happens as we saturate our lives and our thoughts, our hearts with the word of God. And what I'm talking about is this. Every one of us, if you're a Christ follower, should be engaged in a lifelong project of reading and studying and memorizing and meditating and applying God's word. This is not just something you pay people like me to do, okay? Some people think that, that this is what pastors do. No, anyone who is a child of God has this uh, opportunity to be in the word of God and receive the truth of God for them, their very selves. And so I just want to ask you a question. You've heard me ask it before, and I'll just let you know in advance. I'm going to ask it again. Are you in God's word regularly, even daily? Are you spending time with God in his word 
that he has revealed to you in some way engaging God's word, not just verses here and there, but reading the books that God has revealed to us and given us as his word, reading all of them as you have the opportunity. It is so vital to your spiritual health. It is so indispensable to you actually knowing and then living out your true identity. And one of the problems, biggest problems that we face in 2018 is the amount of time that almost all of us spend amusing and entertaining ourselves. Now, I want to say what I'm about to say with all tenderness and compassion. Um, I'm your pastor, and I love you. This is my favorite service. You know that. (laughs) And I'm not pointing fingers just at you. This is applied to myself as well. But I want to say this. You should not be surprised that if you spend far more time on your social media or on the Internet or watching Netflix, whatever it is, if you spend far more time doing these things than you do spending time in God's Word, you should not be surprised that you struggle with living as a child of God. I had somebody after the first service this morning uh, say to me, you should have told people, Pastor Mike, to look at their phones. You know the part where it has the battery usage thing? You ever looked at that? If you haven't ever looked at that thing, it tells you which apps you're using the most, which apps are draining the most power from your battery. I'm just telling you ahead of time, you're going to be embarrassed when you look, probably. You're going to be embarrassed at which apps you spend most of your time on your phone utilizing. They said that would be a good check. Here's the thing. Here's what I'm talking about. The truth can't speak louder than the lies if you're not listening to it. Amen? And so make sure that you're, you're taking active steps to reshape your mind and your heart with God's word. Here's the second thing. I reshape my mind and heart with prayer. I pray in line with the truth God reveals in his word. I pray in the reality that I am his child. I pray as a child. I really, really do. And actually, Jesus went out of his way to teach this. I'll give you just one example, but it's a huge example. It's actually in the Lord's Prayer. You all know that. This is the time that Jesus' followers came to him and asked him to teach them how to pray. And he said, okay, this is how you should talk to God the Father. And then he gives them what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's actually more of a suggested outline. He wasn't really saying that this should be the verbatim set of words that you parrot back to God, although it's okay to pray those precise words. But what he was really getting after was this is a pattern of prayer. This is the kind of way that you should pray. Pray along these lines. This is the way you should talk to God, the kind of things that you should talk to God about. Let me read it. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, you've heard these words before, but I want you to pay attention to one line. And it's the first one. Our Father. This is so familiar to us that I think we miss what is going on here. So I want to slow this down for just a moment. And I want to ask you, do you know that when Jesus said, I want you to pray this way, I want you to pray like this, and then he started out by saying, our Father in heaven, I want you to know that the people listening, like their mouths would have dropped open. If they were standing up, they would have sat down. 
if they were drifting off like some of you, they would have perked up. Because what Jesus said, when he said these words, it was like the most startling thing that could come out of his mouth because he actually used the Aramaic word Abba for father. Now, you've probably heard that before. Maybe you're asking, why is that important? Well, no one else had ever used that word for God before. No one else had ever suggested that you would talk to God that way before. Not ever. No one. You see, Abba was an intimate term. It would have been commonly used in a family, and it would have been mostly used between a small child and her parent. The the Jewish Talmud uh, talks about this with children learning to say Abba and Emma. That's dear father, dear mother. If we bring this up to today, it has often been suggested that the best translation for us today would be daddy. Or some experts even say, a better translation would be dada. It's like the very first words that a baby might say. You see, the point is this was not some kind of formal, stiff, solemn ad- address to God. This was a term of endearment spoken with the affection and with the intimacy that only a young child could bring to its saying. So, how should we pray? So we should pray, Jesus says, intimately, like we were crawling into the lap of our Father, like we were feeling our Father's loving arms wrap around us as we share with him just whatever has happened in our day. We're to be like little children, not childish in the sense of immaturity, not childish in the sense of like meaningless chatter, but childlike like in the sense of this close, intimate, transparent, honest relationship with the Father that we should pray the way a child interacts with her daddy. I want to say something about this to you. I want to suggest something to you, and and I'm going to tell you ahead of time, some of you aren't going to like this. Some of you are going to be very uncomfortable with it. And if you are, it's because you haven't fully accepted this. Here's what I want to say. I want to suggest, at least for a while, you open your prayers, dear heavenly daddy. See, that sounds weird, right? We, We laugh. Oh. Or if you really want to go for it, Say, Dada, I'm coming before you today. You say, I can't say that. Why not? That's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he used this word Abba. Some of you who come from a different culture may have a different word or expression than that, then you use that. But begin to reshape your mind, begin to reshape the way you think of God by addressing him in a way that expresses intimacy, openness, transparency. And I'm telling you, if you say, I can't do that, then the problem's not with him. The problem's on your end, and you just need to keep working on it. You need to get yourself to a place where you see God the way God reveals himself to be. This kind of reminds me of a wonderful scene that's in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a scene where the two young girls, Susan and Lucy, are rolling in the grass with Aslan the lion. And if you know the story, uh, you'll, you'll remember that Lewis wrote this as an allegory, and Aslan the lion is a Christ figure. And this scene takes place after Aslan had died and then after he was resurrected again. 
And he wrote, C.S. Lewis wrote that all three of them were rolling over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. And he talked about how no one would think ever of approaching a lion this way. But Aslan loved it. See, this is not the way that those who first heard Jesus' teaching had been taught to pray, much less taught to think much less taught to think this about who they were. They were taught about formality and distance. That was what guided their approach to God. I mean, anything but Abba. See, are you willing to go there with God? Are you willing to see yourself and him in that way? Like I said, it may be hard for you, especially at first, and maybe that's going to be kind of bound up with who our earthly dads were, and we get our earthly dad and our heavenly father all mixed up. But you need to begin to retrain and reshape your mind and your heart. Let God's word speak truth to you. Let your prayers uh, shape those things as you talk to God and you see him as a loving dad and you allow the reality that he is your loving father and you are his child. Let that shape you. Just let your heart be filled with the reality of God's love for you. Maybe some of you need to imagine That loving, wise father you always yearn for. Imagine walking down a path with him by your side, his arm around your shoulders, and he's listening. And he's offering carefully chosen words of encouragement. He's showing you unconditional love. And maybe unlike your own father, with this father, you don't feel awkward, but you feel at ease. You feel safe. You feel loved unconditionally. You know that you have never been abandoned by this father and you never will be. See, that's the kind of relationship God wants with you. He's always wanted that kind of relationship. If you find yourself doubting this, if you find yourself wondering, well, how can we know that's really what he wants? I'll give you the answer real simply. We know this ultimately because of the cross. We know we have that love. Because of the cross. Romans 5 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8 31 and 32 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? The cross proves that God is our loving heavenly father. I mean, and when you look at the New Testament, just think about how we see the triune God. He's fully engaged in this, our our identity as sons and daughters. You go back to Ephesians 1 and, and then you look at Romans 8 and what we see is the father eternally chose and predestined us in his love to be his children. We, we see that the son gave his life on the cross so that we could be his brothers and sisters. And, and we see that the, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption who is in us and who is testifying to us that we are God's sons and we are God's daughters. Isn't that incredible? See, God wants us to live just like this. It's, it's what Paul talks about in Romans 8, 14 and 15. It says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you should not be like cowering, fearful slaves. You should behave instead like God's very own children, adopted into his family, calling him father, dear father. You see, that's 
the new identity Christ brings. That's the new life that you can begin if you haven't been living it. So do you see yourself as a child of God? Do you see God as your father? Do you see who you truly are, your true self? You know, I think for many of us, for that to happen, we need to grow young again. For us to become who we are, we need to enter again into the life of children and be the children that we really are. I think when we do that, we begin to see who we, our true self in a different way. That's just the way children are, you know. They, they don't look at the world through these grown-up eyes that have gathered all these insecurities, right? You've just been gathering insecurities, right? Doubts about yourself for years, some of us. Children don't do that. Children tend to look at the world through these kind of pure and pristine eyes. They, they feel loved by their parents, and they just assume that everyone thinks that way. It's such a precious thing when a child expresses that, Right? And it's such a sad thing when people grow up and they lose it. I want to show you an example of this in action. There was a social science experiment where uh, they got some people together, a group of people together. They asked them all the same question, just one question. The only thing that was different was they asked some people who were grown-ups, and they asked some people who were children. And the answers were very, very different. Take a look at this with me. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, let's do this. Team Zebra, take one. Mark. So we've got one question that we want to ask you today. Okay, well, what's that question? The question is, if you could change one thing about your body, what would it be? Um, only one. <laughs> um, I would change my forehead. I have a really big forehead. I'd like to be taller. The puffiness of my face. My ears. I have big ears. Stretch marks after having a baby. <laughs> a lot of times, like, kids would make fun of me, like, hey man, you got big ears, you got Dumbo over there, you know? Definitely my skin, because I've dealt with acne and eczema issues ever since I was a little kid. Growing up, like a lot of people call me like five head, and be like, your forehead's so big, they've always like would say something to me about it. When I was younger, I felt like I wasn't quite adequate enough. Can you sit on the chair? No. All right, I'm going to ask you one question. What's the question? If you could change one thing about your body, what would you change? Um, hmm. 
Um, you know, half a mermaid tail. Probably like a shark mouth. So I could eat a lot of stuff. I could have teleportation in my body. Extra 20 years. I want legs like a cheetah so I can run faster like a cheetah. I could have wings so I could fly. I don't think there's anything to change. I like my body, actually. Yeah, you wouldn't change anything? Nothing else. Just a mermaid tail. <laughs>